0: If you would open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, uh, we are starting a new sermon series. Uh, uh, we're going through, obviously, through the book of Philippians, and the, the uh, title of this series is A Christ-Centered Life. A Christ-Centered Life. Um, and by way of introduction, um, I want to say that I, personally, I love uh, letters of encouragement. I love good stationery. I love the kind of soft, porous paper that just absorbs the ink from your pen. Uh, And I love a good pen, as I've shown you before. This is my holy pen, right? We've talked about this a couple weeks ago. And um, I realize my very masculinity is at risk here, just telling you all these things, but I don't care. Uh, There are a few things that are more meaningful to me than a uh, well-written letter of encouragement. And uh, this is true to the extent that I actually save them. I hold on to them. Uh, on, the, on, the, in the, on my desk, on the third drawer, uh, on the left-hand side, I put all my encouragement cards. And I keep them because there are days when you're like, all right, <laughs> you know, is anybody like me? I gotta open this up and see what's going on. Oh yeah, this person did, too bad they moved, you know. <laughs> So I actually keep these things for those kinds of days, and I brought them. So this isn't like every one that I've received over the years, but there's, there's, a, there's a pile of them. This is what many of you all have taken time to write down and to share with me. And this is over about 16 years. Um, some of them, you know, didn't make the cut, but, but these are the ones that did. Uh, I'll say that. Uh, I've got to put these somewhere. I don't know. Here we go. We'll put them right there. And uh, there are some of them that are, to be honest with you, a little more meaningful than others, either because of the source or because of the sentiment that was expressed, uh, or maybe there was a degree of specificity that I found really encouraging. And so I brought a couple of my top ones here. I thought I'd share in general some of them with you. Uh, This first one is from Pastor Paul Holmes. Uh, This was before uh, we lived here. This is when I had just met him over the phone, and we were talking about the possibility of moving to Alaska to shepherd here. And at Christmas time, he took the time to write Amy and I uh, a very, or Amy and me, a very personal note. And it was special that he would give us that kind of personal care. And uh, so I saved it. Uh, the next one I have is also, again, from Paul Holmes. <laughs> Apparently, he was one of the first people to write to me. And. Um, and this one was at the time of, the, of our transition in leadership, when he had asked me to follow him in the lead pastor role, and he wrote me an encouragement card, you can do this and we'll help you. And that's effectively what this one says. Uh, the next one, this was from, uh, this was also uh, kind of early into the transition of leadership of uh, me moving into the lead pastor role, so almost about 10, I guess about 10 years ago. Uh, this was from Gene uh, Filoni. A godly woman who loved the word and taught the word. And she shared with me her encouragement and affirmation. This was very meaningful. Um, this next one here is sweet. Uh, this is from Hokey Moore. One of the early pastors of this church. And we had him up for the 50th anniversary. And it was sweet to hear from him, and boy, he and, and uh, Vernon Krause, these two, these two guys were, uh, they were cards, and uh, tough to keep in line while they were here, I'll tell you that. Uh, but he took time to just pen out a note of encouragement and how meaningful it was for him to be invited up for uh, that time, and so I have saved that one. And then this last one um, is probably for me, might be the most special of all, Uh, This person doesn't have maybe the stature in the church that the others might have had. Uh, This was a woman who came to the church a few years back. She came here broken by her own words. And she just talked about the collective ministry that you all, that this church, had in her life. As she came here broken, not expecting to enjoy her time, being blessed by the worship, by the teaching, and by the relationships that grew here and by her own admission, she says, I left here whole because I left here with a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is very meaningful. So these are some of the best that I have. I don't even know if I want to follow this with a message. That's the message. <laughs> you all brought the message. Those are my favorite epistles, my favorite letters. And, um, and the, the book that we are looking at here, the book of Philippians is one of these kinds of letters. It's one of these notes of encouragement that if it were sent to us, we would keep it. It wouldn't be in the third drawer, it'd be in the top drawer. We'd pull it out regularly, we'd read it for encouragement, we would let its truths wash over us and just sanctify and encourage and bless us by the truth and the sweetness that it contains. The letter that we're looking at today is written from the Apostle Paul uh, to the Philippians. And the major theme of the letter is, uh, it's kind of hard to pinpoint, to be honest. Uh, Many have suggested that the theme of the letter is joy. Uh, And that word or a version of it appears more than a dozen times in the book, which is only 104 verses long, so that's a reasonable suggestion or assertion. Uh, However, I think uh, because of its uh, even greater prominence, we find the word or the phrase Christ Jesus 51 times in a book that is 104 verses long. In other words, almost every other verse, we are running into it again and again and again. And because of that, I would suggest that the theme of the book is an encouragement to live the Christ-centered life. Uh, The book has really three main uh, parts to it. Uh, And maybe parts is not even... best word because it's not like delineated around these things, but there's three sort of features that we find throughout. Uh, There is um, a thank you for a financial gift uh, that Paul received from the Philippians. Uh, There is encouragement that is peppered throughout to remain steadfast in their faith. And there's also in the letter uh, some loving and gentle exhortation. All three components are in the book. All three of those features we find in the verses we're looking at this morning, in just the first uh, 11 verses or so. Um, so again, I think it's, it's maybe a little bit hard to identify uh, the central theme, but because Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus is referenced 50 plus times, I would suggest that that is the thing, that Paul is encouraging the Philippians to live the Christ-centered life against all of the cultural currents to the contrary, that they would be centered on Christ Jesus. It also seems to me that Paul is saying that living that kind of life is worth it, producing lasting joy for those who do so. And those words are not just uh, hallmark words, you know, pre-printed words on a card, copy and pasted from one book to another. Uh, my family, my extended family, most are from Traverse City, Michigan. Do we have any, any other folks from Michigan or with family in Michigan? So a few of you might relate to this, maybe, maybe the Midwest in general. In Michigan, you send cards for everything, for every occasion. Maybe I, this might be Midwest as well, I don't know. But we would get cards all the time from my extended family. And it was always a little humorous to me how they would handle the inside message, which was already written. You know, somebody at Hallmark is working on these all day long. Writing. And so my family would just like take a pen and underline a few words. And I always thought it was like this puzzle, you know? You open it up and you see, okay, which words are underlined here? You know, it might say something like, we think you're really a great guy. Uh, You're very, very special to us. Happy birthday. And I would look at it and I'm thinking, why is the word special underlined? You know, special. You're really special. You know, a fella could interpret that a lot of ways. (laughs) Why not great guy? You know, that's really clear. So I always thought those were kind of funny. Why are you underlining a word? Tell me what you think. That's what I want to, ha- that's what I want to hear. But Paul, Paul is not just giving us pre-printed words in his, his letter here to the Philippians. He's giving us some very heartfelt, uh, sincere words. And I think they carry some extra credence, especially because of the situation from which Paul is writing. He's in prison. He is in prison writing to the Philippians about living the Christ-centered life and that it produces joy. Think about that. A man in prison whose Christ-centered life has landed him there is writing to a church who's going through struggles living the Christ-centered life in their context, and he's saying, stay at it because it produces lasting joy. I think that gives weight to what what he is saying to them. Uh, his incarceration there, in Rome, most likely in Rome, is, is a lot more like house arrest, but it was still hard, still restricted his ability to, to travel and to proclaim the gospel to others in person. But actually, I think that's really kind of wonderful, uh, and we see sort of the providence of God and the sovereignty of God in this. You can imagine Paul thinking... Lord, why did you save me? Why did you draw me to a saving knowledge of yourself and give me the ministry to share the gospel with the Gentiles and then put me in a prison cell? Get me out of here. I want to see people saved. And yet because he was in prison, he had to write letters. And because he wrote letters, we have a collection of the epistles of St. Paul to the church that are the revelation of God and continue to encourage the saints today. How sweet is the sovereignty of God. We look at situations and think, I'm struggling. Lord, help me. And sometimes I just think in my mind's eye, the Lord is saying, I am helping you. (laughs) Better than you know. Better than you know. Um, So Paul's got this this hard deal where he's in prison. He's restricted. This is uh, a tough thing. He's able to at least write freely. He's able to receive visitors. And he receives Epaphrodites from Philippi. Uh, a brother, a friend who comes to bring to him a gift, a financial gift of encouragement. And uh, this is uh, the, the Philippian church has um, given Paul financial gifts on uh, numerous occasions, at least four other times. And um, you can see why Paul would be really friendly with them then, right? Of course, they've given these financial gifts. Uh, but actually, Paul is not just this evangelist with his hand always out asking for money. In fact, many times when gifts were offered, he refused them because they thought it might create a situation either for the ones offering the gift or for others who might have observed it. So he was careful and judicious about that. However, on this occasion and others from the Philippian church, he accepts the gift, which I think tells us something about Paul's character and how careful he is in guarding his integrity and his character as he is a minister of the gospel. It also tells you something about the Philippian church and their character that Paul thought it would not be a problem for them from them, so he receives it. Um, The beginning of the church uh, in Philippi, this was the first church in what is modern-day Europe. Uh, It's near Greece. Uh, It was planted by Paul about 10 or 12 years earlier. I have a picture of its location for you. (coughs) I think. I think I do. Oh, there I went too. There we go. There we go. Uh, So this is its location, um, if you can see it there. Um, And uh, I want you to turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 16. We're going to start at verse 9. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the formation of the church, how it was started, how it came to be. And actually, I think we find a lot of great information here to help us hermeneutically, to help us with our interpretation of what's going on in the situation we actually learn from the book of Acts. So Acts 16 verses 9 through 16, we see some of the early formation of the church here. It says, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, We put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis, and from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to stay in her home. Listen to her words here. Does this not sound like a businesswoman? If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she says, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Yeah, that woman knows the art of the deal right there, right? (laughs) Anyways, we learned some fascinating things here. First of all, we learned that this is a Gentile city. Now we've been dealing with uh, a predominantly Jewish uh, audience for a long time as we were in the uh, Gospel of Matthew and even as we looked in Hebrews last week. This is a Gentile city. It has no synagogue. And we see that as... As on a sabbath day they 're not able to go to the synagogue. they go out to the river to find a place to prayer because to pray because there 's not enough uh, Jewish folks in the town. so this is a Gentile community, no synagogue, and going out to do that, they find Lydia, who is a god fearing woman but has not fully converted to Judaism. So you get the sense that she 's seeking she 's trying to figure these things out. she believes in a God, she believes in some of the things that Judaism has taught, but she hasn 't converted fully. And here she is with several other women at the river praying. And who should come but the chief apologist of the Christian church? Coincidence. I think not. And we're told that she believed Paul's message, that God opened her heart. And she becomes a believer. And again, I kind of laugh at how persuasive she is. If you think I'm a real believer, then stay at my house. (laughs) Okay, we will. We will. The passage goes on to tell us about Paul and Silas who run into uh, a demon-possessed girl who's basically uh, a group of folks are profiting off of sort of the phenomenon around this possession, and they deliver her from this, which puts them in prison. And then God miraculously springs them from prison, placing the jailer's life in jeopardy because if he lost these, uh, those incarcerated, he would be killed, and yet they stay put, <laughs> And, uh, and, and he comes and finds them, and then eventually he and his whole household come to know the Lord. So here we have the founders of the church. We have this Jewish business, or excuse me, this Gentile businesswoman. Perhaps we have even this girl that was delivered from demonic possession, perhaps. And then we have this jailer in his household, and we have the beginnings of a church, and that's really what, what had happened here. Um, another interesting feature uh, of the book of Philippians is that uh, we find a strong presence of women, not only in the founding of the church, but in the early stages and development of the church as, as leaders. We see Lydia, the businesswoman here, and we, as we go on, we see that Paul mentions two other women by name. Uh, uh, Yodia and syntyche he mentions them in chapter four of philippians which you could turn over there now if you would like he mentions um, them there as folks who served alongside him and contended earnestly for the gospel although in this instance he is also uh, asking for some folks to come alongside and help these two because they're bickering with one another and they need someone to help them reconcile and i'll just say uh, i love the scriptures for its honesty here we have two godly women who have served hard, worked hard in the church, helped the gospel spread, and they still have difficulty getting along and isn't that just doesn't that just smack of reality that's just real and the scriptures are just real that way uh, how'd you like to be recorded in scripture because if you're ongoing feud with somebody else you know. <laughs> the tone of the letter um, the tone of the letter is. Uh, very friendly. Paul has a close friendship with this church. That's obvious. Uh, It was healthy. It was well organized. They had an established leadership. You can see in the early verses, he addresses the elders and the deacons uh, in the church. Uh, This church has supported him with financial gifts on several occasions. And so the tone of the letter is just warm and affectionate. He's almost gushing as he writes to them. And I think it's the tone of the letter, which is part of what makes it so appealing for many Christians today. You know, especially if you're struggling a little bit and you think, "Boy, I need to read something in the New Testament. Where do I want to go?" Well, I'm going to Philippians. Paul's nice there, right? And some of the letters, you know, he has correction to bring, but in this letter, he has encouragement to give. Um, so look with me at Philippians 1:1. We don't don't fear. I know we've already spent a long time. We're halfway through, so just hang in there, okay? Uh, Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And you see, you just hear and feel the warm, affectionate tone of the letter, right? He's gushing here. Uh, Some have called uh, Philippi the Apostle Paul's favorite church. Uh, I don't know about that. But we also see that in this book, he doesn't have to defend his apostleship as he does in some others before he brings some hard correction. Here they love him. They support him. They're already fans. So he's talking to friends, dear, dear friends, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, the city of Philippi, because this is fascinating. We already read back in Acts 16 that Philippi is a Roman colony. And so what's interesting about it is its inhabitants, uh, mostly Gentile, are also mostly military veterans. Mostly retirees from military service. Uh, it's a town that's fairly affluent. Uh, and in fact, when I think about sort of a modern day equivalent, this is what comes to mind. Um, this is Coronado Island in San Diego. My parents live nearby, and whenever we go down to visit them, especially if it's winter, we go here. <laughs> uh, there is at ho- this is the Hotel Del Coronado there on the beach, and there is a breakfast buffet in that hotel that's killer. <laughs> and I love a good breakfast buffet. There is a, an omelet bar there. They'll make any kind of omelet you want. Just stay and linger on this for a little while. Isn't that picture soothing, right? But this is, this is what comes to mind when I think of Philippi. I think of this kind of a small city, very affluent, lots of military retirees. There's, there's more retired admirals here on this city than I think anywhere in the world. And so it just kind of has that vibe to it. Uh, one of the reasons it is this way is because... After the Civil War in BC 42, the Roman Emperor Augustus Octavian basically gave the city to uh, many of the veterans of that war and of their military service in order to repopulate the city uh, and in order to entice them to the region, they gave them some carrots. And here they were. Listen to these. See if this would entice you to the city, exempt from taxes. How many are already there? That's a that's a it's a good start. Land ownership in a really fertile place. Autonomous government. If you didn't raise your hand before, you're probably already there, right? And then all of the rights of Roman citizenship. I was thinking about that and I thought, that sounds pretty good, that sounds pretty good. It made me think a little bit about the Homestead Act of Alaska, right? In 1898, these incentives to come up and start uh, a vibrant life up in Alaska, just like what happened in Philippi, except it's Europe and it's warm, right? (laughs) A little bitter. But because of some of these generous offerings and because of people's relative comfort and what all that they enjoyed there in the city, there grew to be a profound respect and even uh, a cult of the emperor, what we would call emperor worship. Their devotion to the emperor began to sound like uh, emperor, the Lord, and savior. And so this sense of nationalism sort of grew up. And this cult of worshiping uh, those that had benefited them. And so the worship of God, of Yahweh, a Christ centered life in this city was countercultural. It was against the grain. And so as the Philippians are learning to live this Christ centered life and to revere Jesus Christ, they're doing so in a way that puts them at odds with everybody else in town. And it creates some pressure and some opposition. And so this is what it is that Paul is speaking to. So he encourages the believer, and we'll see it in chapter 3, to live as citizens of heaven. That that's your primary citizenship. Not this colony here on earth. But your colony in heaven. That's where you truly belong. Look at verse 6 with me. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. For the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so, one of the things that Paul hits home really early on is that our confidence should be in the Lord and in his power. And I think this is something that we as Americans can relate to uh, the church in Philippi. We have a lot in common with them. As Roman citizens, they had the confidence of all of the rights afforded to them uh, by the world power of the day. They were capable. They were affluent. They were blessed with an array of natural resources. They were located in an ideal location in the physical world. Maybe we don't relate to them on that particular point. They were prominent citizens as soldiers and and businessmen and businesswomen. And Acts tells us that they were the chief city in Macedonia. In other words, one of the temptations for them, as for us, is to think we got our act together. We got all we need. We have this sense of self-confidence. We can do it, get her done. It's sort of the cult of self-reliance. And that, I think, is a temptation available to them as it is for us. And Paul seems to want to turn their head and turn their perspective to recognize what ought to be the source of their confidence. He's confident in the work that God is doing in them, namely their salvation, their participation in the gospel, and that God will sustain them through the midst of the opposition that they are facing. And so I think application for all of us as we come to this book and look at these particular passage, passages here is this. Whether we are tempted to be overconfident in ourselves or whether we're tempted to give up because living the Christian life is too hard against the struggles of the world around us, the believer should be confident that God will finish what he has started. God will finish what he has started. And we see, I think, that this is one of the theological themes that we're confronted with again and again and again in Paul's writing. And that is the beginning and ongoing work of God in our salvation. In other words, that God has initiated the work of salvation in us. We didn't start this thing. God did it. Paul does not applaud the Philippians here as self-made men and women. He doesn't applaud the way they have secured their own salvation, but he recognizes that God is the one who began a work in them and that he is the one who will complete it. In fact, I would would bring your attention back to the passage that we read in Acts earlier. Think about what happened. There's concrete evidence to support what Paul is affirming here. How did the work begin in Philippi? A God-fearing woman looking for the Lord Jesus Christ, went out to the river's edge to pray, and God brings the apologists of the church to her. And she, God opens her heart, Acts says, and she comes to have a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God began something with her. You might even think of the vision that was given to Paul of a man in Macedonia saying, come and bring the gospel to us. You think of this, this, demo, this woman who was demonically possessed and delivered. Think about the jailer, right, who miraculously his jail cell gets opened up he's about to lose all of these folks and yet he meets Paul and Silas who stay and share the gospel with him every evidence is that God began this work in other words this isn't a random kind of thing so when Paul says he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it this isn't just abstract rhetoric it's not just a nice turn of a phrase. These are experiential truths that resonated with the Philippian experience. God's initiative, God's creative work in our salvation. And this is a common theme in the writing of the Apostle Paul. In fact, we looked at this at Christmas time when we looked at 2 Corinthians. If you remember 2 Corinthians 4, it says, For God who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in what? Iron pots! No. We have this treasure in jars of clay. These vulnerable vessels. Why? To show that this power is from God and not from us. Our our vulnerability even in this life is to draw attention to the Lord, to His initiating and sustaining work in, our lives. in other words, salvation is God's from beginning to end. He initiates it, he sustains it, and he brings it to completion. So when we feel strong in our faith and confident, we need to remember it was God who started this. When we feel weak in our faith and vulnerable, we need to remember that God finishes what he starts. And that's the encouragement here. Secondly, here we need to see, um, (coughs) when he says that God will complete what he starts, the word here for complete is really rich. Uh, In other words, there's lots of things we can complete. I completed a half marathon this last summer. I completed it. It wasn't pretty. I had two guys jogging with me at the end to keep me running, saying, come on, you can do it. Let's finish this up. This looks ugly, but come on. And they got me across the line. I completed it but it wasn't that great or that glorious. But the word that is used here to complete is epitelesi. It means to bring to perfection, to bring to the desired end, to bring to glorious completion. The NAS and the NET both capture that word and, uh, by translating it perfect. Uh, in other words, uh, ladies, for those of you who are knitters, you can knit a hat or a sweater. You know it's not complete just by putting in the last stitch and uh, casting off you still have to block it and if you don't block it it, it's just a bunch of knots but it's got to be completed perfectly Uh, gentlemen if you're a woodworker and you like these woodworking projects you know you haven't completed your project when everything's fastened together it has to be finished it has to be sanded it needs to be sealed there's another step and i'll say this to kids uh, the dishes aren't done They're washed, dried, and put away. Can I get an amen to that? Um, The idea here is that God has saved us, He is saving us, and He will save us completely. He will take us to perfection. Uh, Another aspect here that I think we need to see is that this encouragement is given not to the individual alone in the wilderness. We tend to like to read the scriptures very individually. Oh, God's talking about my salvation, about my faith, and about my perfection. This is all about me. That's how we as Westerners often read the scriptures. This is an encouragement to a church community. This is about all of them. It's something we need to recognize so that we'll be good Bible readers. He gives uh, the encouragement here to a fellowship of people. He gives it to a church corporately. He encourages their corporate participation in the gospel, a group effort living out in Christian community and a group that learns to mature in love together, together. Uh, And I think there is a, uh, I think all of this sort of begs the question then, how is it that God is perfecting us? How How does this occur? How do we go about this? And that moves us down to verse 9, where he says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In other words, I think one of the ways, things that we learn here is that our ambition ought to be to grow in love. Paul views love not as just this static possession that we have and we have all at once, but as a dynamic process, something that we have but we grow in, something that we mature in, something that we pursue. We might say that love is something that we become more skilled at. And on one hand, I think it's kind of bold for Paul to say this to the Philippians because think about all the ways they have already loved him. They've already given him on four other occasions financial gifts. They've supported him in the gospel. They worked alongside him to start this church. And now that he's in prison, they don't get ashamed of him and walk away. They send Epaphroditus to go on their behalf and deliver another financial gift and encourage him in the Lord. And and Paul sort of has the audacity to say... I pray that you may grow in your love, that your love may abound more and more. It's kind of a bold thing for him to say to them, in fact. But there is still and always room for our love to grow. And to grow, I think, in skill and to mature. Um, One of the things that we learn, I think, through the scriptures is that um, other Christian virtues are sometimes a byproduct of love. Love is the cardinal Christian virtue. It seems to me that it's one of those things that rather than pursue a list of virtues, if you pursue love, the rest come along with it. They come along with it. Uh, In other words, love is not just this mere sentiment, but it's rooted in knowledge and understanding. Love is when we seek the best for another person, But the best for the other person isn't always obvious. We have to grow in our knowledge and maturity and discernment so that we might know what that actually is. Uh, We see false efforts of love all the time. I'll just throw an example out to you. Somebody approaches you on the way out of a grocery store, hey, can you spare a couple bucks? Some kinds of love might say, sure. Here's, Here's 50 bucks. Is that love? I I think and I hope you would learn that over time that's probably not the most loving thing to do for that individual in that context. You You may be filled with compassion for this person asking you for something, but you may be sending them to a world of destruction. Love grows in knowledge and understanding and depth of insight, and it grows in its ability to discern what really is the right thing to do. Uh, It may be that Paul, for the Philippian church, was easy to love. But as we can see in the church, there are still other threats. There are other difficulties that this church has to learn to grow to mature in. Some of those threats, as we'll go on in the book, we'll see, were pride. Pride was still a risk in the church. So he encourages their humility later on. They're still infighting, as we see, Yodia and Syntyche. And Paul's saying, hey, somebody go along and help those scouts. (laughs) They need some help. Uh, So there's plenty of occasions here where love was in short supply and where they still needed to grow in skill. And the letter, I think, unpacks uh, how one becomes skilled in showing love. Um, Let's look down at the last point here. Let me read the verses again, verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best It may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so the last point here is this, that all of our ambitions for growth and maturity are ultimately for God's glory and for God's praise. In other words, we don't grow and mature in our Christian walk, even in our love and these other virtues. We don't do it so that we'll have a really nice headstone one day, okay? We don't do it for the open mic at our funeral, and just in case you all don't already know this, there's no open mic at my funeral. I'm just <laughs> going to go on record and say that in case it's not widely known. Um, we pursue these virtues and these callings for the glory of Christ Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul begins his letter referring to himself and Timothy as an interesting, with an interesting phrase. He calls himself servants, so that's how it's translated, but it's really the Greek word douloi, which means bond slave. They have enslaved themselves to Christ and to his mission. In other words, they're not walking with God on planet Earth to gain for themselves a better stature here and now. But they joyfully and happily consider themselves slaves to Christ and to his mission and to his errand. And they're able to say that with joy from the prison cell. So we've got a great book ahead of us, A Calling to Live the Christ-Centered Life, something that Paul can say will produce lasting joy, and he says it from the prison cell. So hope lots of encouragement coming. And uh, let's close in prayer, and uh, we'll respond to the Lord in song and worship. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your sovereignty, you put a man like Paul in prison. And we can thank you for that, because from it, we get to read his mail. Mail not only to the church of Philippi, but through them to us, to encourage us in our faith, to encourage us to live the Christ-centered life. I pray, Lord, that this would be a rich study, uh, that we would truly be encouraged to consider our citizenship as in heaven, and not here on earth. May we grow more and more in skill in our love. May it abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that we would be a true blessing to others as you empower us. We love you and we thank you for your word. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.